Hello everybody, welcome to the State of Mind podcast, where we create space for conversations about mental health that change lives, by bringing you the stories underneath the slogans. We want people to learn that they are empowered by their experience, not inhibited. My name is Mike Stroh, I'm the founder of Starts With Me a consultancy that specializes in K-12 education and workplace mental health. I am a psychotherapist and I am passionate about all things mental health and well-being. On this episode, I am speaking with Daniel Farb, a psychotherapist and an MC rapper musician. In this episode, we discuss the various ways that people are helped through therapy how people navigate difficult moments in their moment-to-moment experience, what it looks like to live a full and meaningful life, and how Daniel cultivates that in his own life, and how he navigates some of his own personal challenges. We talk about how his music is a form of, is an outlet for him in some sense to share some of his important messages, And towards the end, we get into some dialogue around contemporary social issues that seem to be causing a lot of commotion in our social discourse. And I think that was a very sincere and honest, engaged discussion about those topics. I think Daniel had a beautiful moment where he said what the world really needs right now are spiritual giants people who can act with integrity and put themselves out there holding that integrity in a way that other people are drawn to and I really found that to be quite a beautiful moment and exchange between us when we were talking about those social issues so please listen please comment please share this Please subscribe, all of those things. And of course, you can always contact me at mike at startswithme.ca. I would love to hear from you. Without further ado, I bring you Daniel Farb. Daniel, thank you so much for being here and for doing this. And as I always say, I think it's best when the guests introduce themselves. Can you just tell people a bit about yourself and what brings you to your work? And we'll go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, Yeah. Thanks for having me, inviting me. Uh, my name is Daniel Farb. I'm a registered psychotherapist, uh, currently living and working in Burlington, Ontario, originally from Toronto. Um, been, I guess working as a psychotherapist for about the past five years and working in mental health a couple of years longer than that. And uh, what brought me to this work was I was looking for something that would be uh, meaningful and fulfilling as a career uh, for myself, something where I feel like I could actually impact people, make a make a positive difference in, in the world in a general sense, but also in a specific sense in people's lives. And uh, on a more personal note, being drawn to this world of mental health and uh, psychotherapy and healing and recovery and personal growth has been, has been a longstanding uh, part of my life personally going back many years to before I entered this in a, in a professional realm. Awesome. Thanks. And, and uh, you're also, you have a 
a musical career. Can you just talk my, about my that alter a ego? Bit or, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I before I got into um, doing the mental health stuff professionally, I was really focusing on music as a, a hip hop MC, more commonly known as a rapper, under the stage name MC Fub, F U B B, and uh, yeah, I've been doing that since uh, since about. When did I really start? About 2009. I was really seriously pursuing it, but I was rapping and dabbling in that since high school. And uh, yeah, that's been uh, something I did pretty intensely for a few years. Realized it was quite a difficult uh, thing to become uh, uh, something that you could live off of in terms of making money, in terms of succeeding professionally, and realized the whole lifestyle and sacrifices necessary to do that probably wasn't going to work out for me. Um, but it's something I still do uh, more as a hobby and when inspiration strikes. Um, so the last time I officially released an album was 2000, uh, I want to say 2019. 19. Yeah. yeah, end of 2019. And that, that was the uh, EP Wounded Healer, which was really kind of bridging uh, the mental health world that I'm currently working in with the hip hop community that I, I was uh, much more a part of in the past. So yeah awesome yeah the maybe maybe that's a good way and i wanted to ask you one thing about um one of your songs i don't want to talk about all of that as too much but i do find it pretty interesting to i mean music and art is a great way uh to discuss and express things about difficult topics and just the mm -hmm. one song, Belonging, I think that's what it's called, Belonging. Mm -hmm. um, how, how, how do you, at least my interpretation of the song is that it's a blend of being who we are or being us, like, how do we balance the need to conform mm -hmm. in some sense to these perhaps on, I don't know, no, like social norms or supposed social norms um yeah verse yeah so like maybe you can explain a bit more of the song and what was going on behind it but i thought it's like a really interesting part sure. of individual psychology and well-being yeah so that that song belong is off yeah off this ep belonging which um especially that song is really focused on one that we all have a, a fundamental human need to belong in the world in our communities and our families or whatever that is and that's that's actually something that's been studied uh, as a as a basic human need, and um, you know, but the, as you mentioned, there's this counterbalance of us being authentic to who we are and like who we really are versus you know the face that we put on for the world um, in order to belong, in order to gain acceptance, right? And that negotiation is something that we have to go through from early on in life uh, to be accepted and loved. We have to we learn we have to be certain ways, right? And some of those lessons are very helpful and probably good for us and others sometimes uh, lead to you know that that idea of more of like a persona or a false self that we put on and you know the that song's really like just expressing that I, I think it's sad that we have to to a certain extent like like women have to put on makeup like what, like why do you have to put on makeup to go outside right men are supposed to wear you know in certain jobs wear suits and ties it's like you have to do that or you're looked at as like what's wrong with you and so these these um there's these uh, balance that we need to strike between like what really matters to us, what are our values, what's important to us, and also what society will deem acceptable, right? 
and uh, there are there are certain societal values that I think we should all adopt. And then there's others that are like, yeah, you can take them or leave them. It's up to you. But to give up what what is seen as normal uh, for what you feel is or works better for you can be very difficult and anxiety provoking. And and we're kind of we're we're social creatures, so it, we can never just exist as just uh, entirely socially oriented beings or just completely like islands onto ourselves. There's that balance we're always striking. And so I think it's, uh, I've always, I've always kind of resented a lot of uh, what I see as societal norms or conventions that don't fit with me. And people just accept them as, yeah, that's how it is. That's what you're supposed to do. And I'm like, why? Doesn't make sense to me, which then, you know, then uh, lead to social difficulties. If everyone else around you is like, yeah, we all celebrate this holiday. And you're like, well, I don't, I don't really care about it, but I kind of also don't want to be like sore thumb and stand out and, you know, and I also want to belong. So we have to, we all have to negotiate those balances. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It is a negotiation. I don't think I, I, I would say I also or I was and still am a person who resists conformity. And now as I become older and as my resistance to conformity in some sense caused me enough <laughs> difficulties in life, right. I'm sort of surrendering a little bit to, you know, there is, there is as, as you mentioned, a positive side to conformity, yet it is always a balance. And I think it's difficult, obviously, to, to tread that line, um, which perhaps maybe leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, do you think, okay, I'll try to frame this as best as I can. So I, I think, from my understanding, a lot of human suffering uh, comes from being disconnected from sort of a value system that we hold personally and then how that value system rubs up against the social norms and then so maybe that's a bit of an existential perspective and then mm -hmm. there's the just uh perhaps thought disorders or whatever you want to call them like thinking problems feeling problems um how i guess how would you or how do you approach those two first of all do those two kind of frames make sense like the symptomatic expressions yeah. of of problems and then the underlying kind of existential ones sure yeah i think um there's always different levels that we can look at a problem and especially in human beings like you can take so many different lenses and that's why there are hundreds of different schools of psychotherapy. Right. And then outside right. of psychotherapy, there's probably even more ways of looking at the human condition and human suffering and problems. So, um, you know, we can, we can focus on, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the more modern uh, Western psychotherapies like CBT and, and, and others are really focused on like helping you function better, uh, helping you adapt better and not get yourself stuck um, making your problems worse, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah. it's like, if you're constantly overreacting to the bad things in your life based on how you interpret them, it's probably worth looking at because 
you still have the problems, but now you're just you're just blowing them out of proportion and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't, um, you know, that's the most common way that CBT is taught is is, a, is from a sort of a symptom reduction lens, and and it can be quite useful to help us better manage our lives. The more underlying issues of like, you know, what what is that underlying tension and, and difficulty that you're struggling with throughout your life, you know, that gets more from a CBT lens to like core beliefs or from an existential lens or you know, really your life purpose and um, your values and do you know what your values are? Are you living in accordance with them? Um, those are those are much more, I think, longstanding, lifelong journey questions, right? And um, so there's, there's definitely value to both. I think there's value to looking at lots of different levels. And as a therapist, I'm considering myself to be an integrative therapist where I'm, I'm not just sticking to one approach if I can. I'm, I'm looking for problem areas and seeing what's going to help reduce that burden of suffering and help the person get closer to whatever their definition of a happy or fulfilling life is. And, you know, sometimes that's focusing on how we relate to our bodies. Sometimes that's focusing on the life purpose question. Sometimes it's addressing ways of thinking that aren't serving us or causing us more problems. So I forgot what the the original question was exactly yeah, no that was a good answer yeah. <laughs> so that was the first half because i think i stopped myself so yeah it was like those two parts um and then i think i might have forgotten too but perhaps to add to that the i do think it's interesting the sort of symptom reduction approach which definitely is helpful um and you, you said it really nicely. We tend to make our problem, like the inevitable problems we have tend to become worse when we have unhelpful ways of relating to them. Mm -hmm. Do you think, this is maybe a, a broader question, but I often, well, when I'm in a teaching, uh, when I have my teaching hat on, so to speak, and I'm not teaching depth like i'm teaching very broadly but i often sort of start with it seems that most of the time we don't acknowledge the fact that for the most part life is suffering right which is that kind of right first principle in a lot of the spiritual teachings and then if we can just acknowledge that then we are in a position to reduce that suffering or to make it uh, yeah, reduce it, I guess, quite a bit. Um, and so I wonder, I, I don't see that, ex well, actually, it is explicit in the acceptance and commitment therapy stuff, but not so much in other models. And, and I, I know I'm not exactly asking a specific question, but how, what do you think about that underlying yeah. acknowledgement? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's the life is suffering or life contains suffering as an right. inherent part of life um, is straight out of, you know, Buddhism and, and a lot of Eastern traditions. And, and uh, I think probably most religious traditions will acknowledge that. Um, and then you're coming up against a medical model, which is like, find out the symptom and get rid of it, uh, or find out the disease and, and cure it, which, you know, can you cure human suffering on the whole? Well, no, because it's an inherent part of the human condition. So you you couldn't still be a human being in this world and not experience pain and suffering at times, right? Um, 
but we can address unnecessary manifestations of suffering, right? So if you stub your toe, thing that happens to anyone at some point in their life, yeah. you need to punch the hole in the ball afterwards. You need to swear. Do you need to? Do you need to let it ruin your day? Probably not. Although you might be prone to that, and if you are, then that's something you can look at and, and how to change, right? Um, you know, I look at you know my own personal experiences with with depression, and it's like. I don't think I'll ever be cured of the tendency to go that direction or uh, to have symptoms at times of fatigue and of you know, things that, especially if I'm overly stressed or not taking good care of myself, that's, that's how my body responds. But what I've learned over time is that the kind of delving into uh, negative patterns of rumination about myself and my life and thinking and that can really, you know, be the difference between I feel kind of crappy too. My life is horrible, and I'm in a never-ending cycle of misery. And you know that leads down that cycle. That's something I've I've learned and continue to learn that I have I have some say over, right? And that's that's been a little bit more from the mindfulness kind of practice that's really helped me see that for myself. So there there are layers of unnecessary suffering, and and I think most of the suffering. That we see in the world today probably is unnecessary but that's not at just an individual level that's at a societal and global level of things going on right so yeah 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 i think uh i think again both lenses can be helpful like if you have a particular problem area and you're like how do i attack this how do i solve it how do i make change uh the kind of more practical approach of something like CBT can be quite helpful or other modalities that, that do that. But if we want to talk about changing the way we relate to the fact that we suffer at all, um, that's the deeper, longer term kind of work. And I think it, it is helpful. I, I, I know you do a lot of those, you know, you do a lot of mental health talks and things. And I've, I've always uh, struggled with like to just if I'm in a role like that, to keep it just on the surface area, mental health 101, because I'm always, my mind goes to like, let's talk about the real problem, the deeper issues, right? But when you're just learning to even talk about these things, I think to your question before, to normalize, yeah, our goal here is not to be happy all the time. <laughs> our goal is not to be, you know, because that itself, you know, this this term toxic positivity comes to mind. And I see that and it, I cringe when I see it. And when people like good vibes only, I'm like, what if I'm having a bad vibe? I'm not welcome here. Like, <laughs> you know, so it's like, you know, again, it's, it's this line of like, let's try to not make things that are hard worse. And if we are doing that inadvertently, no one wants to do that. Um, let's look at that and see how we can address it, but also accept that. Yeah. Life will never be good all the time for most people. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I think, I really like the first point you said about um, at least what's been really helpful for me is to be familiar with my, how my, um, what's the word, I guess, inclinations to suffer, uh, how I make them worse or how I can make them better. And I think I, I am prone to low mood and, and sort of depressive symptoms, definitely. And I know I'm much better at becoming aware of that pattern beginning and gaining momentum. And which, man, I, my mind goes in so many directions. Another one of my uh, 
manifestations of my ADHD type of uh, symptoms is, okay, I wanted to ask you, because it leads nicely into one of the other questions was just, what, what do you do for your own well-being and to sort of strengthen your mental health and resilience? Um, so maybe we start there. And then I wanted to ask you, I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget um, how you see, I find this really fascinating, the difference between, um, I, I assume you're pretty familiar with CBT since you've been yeah. discussed. Yeah. Just so where, where CBT perhaps parts ways or diverges from like mindfulness CBT, MBCT, or maybe mm -hmm. a more act perspective of noticing thoughts, just observing them, perhaps labeling them, but not trying to use that counter evidence yeah. and, and get into an argument with your thoughts almost. So mm -hmm. I don't know where you want to start. There's two, two questions there. So the first one was, yeah, yeah, what do you do to maintain resilience? And then the CBT versus MBCT approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in terms of taking care of myself, something that I continually need to pay more attention to. <laughs> um, I mean, there's basics of make sure you, you know, I make sure I'm sleeping enough, make sure I'm eating regularly and not just eating junk food. Um, I mean, being, I'm, I'm, I'm still learning every day, but being mindful of like, what are the effects of X behavior or habit? And what are the effects of when I change it? And one thing I've realized is very vital for me is uh, getting outside <laughs> um, sunshine, when it's sunny, it definitely has a positive effect on my mood, physical exercise. It doesn't have to be vigorous, but like walking itself, um, practicing mindfulness as much as I can, not necessarily a ton of sitting formal meditations these days, but like being present with like, hey, I've got this 20 minutes in the morning. What do I want? To, what do I want to do with it? So I can sit and browse on my phone. I can try to watch TV. I could go outside and spend time outside if it's nice out. So um, just trying to be aware of that. Um, value of uh, interpersonal relationships. I've always, uh, my tendency has always been to be more introverted and to isolate, go into myself, but, uh, you know, being married, um, connecting with family, especially over the pandemic and just even calling people like, these are things I push myself to do to open up more, to connect more, which um, actually is helpful uh, for me. And, and it's one that got kind of validated as like, oh, this is the whole basis behind interpersonal therapy or IPT for depression is like don't keep all your stuff inside connect with people talk to people it doesn't have to be anything big and profound but that has I noticed be big effects on my mood um yeah abstaining and refraining from uh substances like alcohol cannabis things that I I, I used to indulge in a lot um, I've, you know, I went for many years of complete abstinence. I've dabbled uh, since then with, you know, alcohol and stuff, but I realized like the occasional drink, whatever, doesn't make me feel actually great. It doesn't do too much, but if I start to do it habitually, the addictive pattern kicks in and then, then my, all my, everything's worse. So being very mindful of substances, it's, it's a big one for me, uh, especially as someone with a, being, having an addiction history. Um, and also just lately has been looking at how much time do I spend working? Uh, I can I can easily get into that almost an addictive thing around work of like, well, I can just pick up one more client. I can work a couple more hours. I can take this extra position. It's like, but I have limitations and uh, it's pretty easy to add stuff to the plate and it's harder to take them off. So watching out for burnout, 
um, you know, if I'm feeling irritable most of the time, even when I'm not working, that tells me something important about where my my time is invested in priorities. And I, I'd like to be able to, you know, I'd like to be able to work 60 hours and then just be fine, <laughs> right? But especially doing this kind of work, uh, I find that is not the case. It's very um, emotionally, takes a lot of an emotional investment. Um, it can be taxing and draining. So I have to be very mindful of that too. And it's something I'm lately have been scaling back more for that reason. So I think like lifestyle factors, how we spend our time, what we do, all of this stuff, it, it doesn't always seem like there's not like a straight one-to-one correlation of, oh, I did that and now I feel this way. It's, it's, it's cumulative over time. And that's where it gets murkier and uh, paying a lot of attention to patterns in one's life become very helpful, I think. Yeah, definitely. That one about, I think I'm learning... I'm, I I never learned how to kind of set schedules and and uh, reflect on how my mood is correlates to how much I'm working or not working and all that kind of stuff. And I do think that is hugely important and often not uh, off not paid as much attention to because it doesn't seem like a quick win or a quick fix. It's sort of the less, the more boring, uh, yet incredibly important ways of maintaining our well-being. And I think perhaps a little bit for me too, I am, part of it is my delusional sense of what is possible in a certain amount of time <laughs> mixed with my desire to, Ooh, if I just do one more thing, I like what you said too, about it's easy to add stuff on, but then we don't, well, I don't realize, Oh gee, that's actually going to take me 10 or 20 hours. And where, yeah. the, where do I have 10 or 20 hours? I don't have that kind of time. And then I get irritated because whenever I'm not doing something, I think I should be doing something. And therefore, yeah. I'm not, yeah, oh, it's torture. It's a, it's a, it's this whole, um, like the whole, like, very, uh, like anything is possible, set your mind to it, you can achieve it, like all that kind of fluffy kind of like, helps you break, it can help you break out of limiting yourself unnecessarily. But then you, you come up against very real limits pretty quickly of time, energy, all of those things, you know, uh, you mentioned because any anything we invest our time into means we're not investing in anything else at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's mm-hmm. family or, or you know, or health, sleep, and um, it is an important uh, an important thing to keep in mind because a lot of people who live in that mentality all the time, like some people thrive in it, and I don't know, those people are just well adapted to it or something. But for my my experience, and I think a lot of people like people who are like yeah I'll just I'll just keep working an 80 hour work week and everything will be fine it's like for how long until you burn out until you know other other areas of your life will inevitably suffer but again it really I guess it depends on what you're coming back to values like what matters to you right and and where where do you want to be spending your time and I think you know I think it's something that doesn't get brought into the the mental health conversation enough is um you know that that aspect, and even the social factors of how our how our society is structured, and like, well, what are pe- people? Everyone is expected to work at least forty hours a week, more or less. It's like, why? 
should we be? Is that what's best for human beings? Or is that just a relic of what has been there for so long, which I think is more likely the case. And, you know, even that like the pandemic has, has opened, I think, over eyes, certain extent, it's like not everyone needs to drive into work every day. Why are we doing that? Right. Um, you know, things like that, that take a ton of time and are bad for environment and stress and all that. It's like, it's, there's so much unnecessary, uh, I think suffering again, that comes just from the way our society is structured, um, based on like, well, that's the way it is. And, and, and change on a societal level is very slow and painful. Um, we're lucky if we see some major positive changes in our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. I feel like I just went on a, a bit of a tangent there, but. Um, no, I like it. I like it. Yeah. That's where my mind goes to more and more these days. It's like, well, like, do we have to live in cities? I'd like to, I, I'd like to live in the cottage country year round. Maybe I can do that now that everything's virtual. Can I do my job virtually after the pandemic? Right. So these are some of the questions going around in my no, head think, these days yeah i think they're really good questions because it also relates well to personal suffering and well-being it's just the the willingness to at least be curious and ask questions like does it have to be this way what if it mm -hmm. wasn't this way even if regardless of whether or not we can really take action right away or make a change immediately, mm -hmm. just being able to ask the question and be curious and open-minded, I find to be quite soothing. And yeah, it doesn't confine us to a box. And then those little opportunities to for things to be different in other areas of our life that are more... Right. Uh, Pot, like the, where the potential to do something different uh, is really there and then we can do it and then experience it and then oh this is awesome that kind of thing yeah i think a lot of times people get stuck with a lack of even imagining what they want their lives to be and what could be possible even if again like you said are you going to be able to snap your fingers and get there today no it may take you many years if, right. if you know and and i don't think there's like a perfect you know utopia you're going to anyone's going to get to but I, this term like closer approximations keeps coming to my mind, like closer approximations of whatever would be a happy, fulfilling, healthy life for ourselves and, and for people around us. And that's been sort of my, you know, focus, I think in the background for, for years, it's like, how do I get a little closer to whatever it is um, equals the kind of life I want to be living. Right. And when you're, yeah. when you're thinking that way, as you said, it opens you up to creativity and paying it. It's not like, I don't think it's like a mystical universal thing. I think we're just now paying attention to, oh, that, that could take me a little closer. That thing there. Oh, this is one thing I could change. Like you're starting to think a little more creatively and look for those opportunities as opposed to just avoiding the problem and the question in the first place. Cause you think, well, there's nothing I can do anyway. So I just got to grin and bear it. Right? So yeah. I think we got to balance like acceptance and presence with our lives today um, because we don't want to miss out on that and then just always be future focused but we also don't want to only do that because then we don't strive for anything right mm -hmm. so too much striving probably isn't the greatest but never striving for anything probably misses makes sells ourselves short right yeah yeah that's really I, from a lot of the things you've said i get a pleasant, I mean, I get pleasant emotions or, or physical sensations 
being reminded of this, the walking the balance and being aware of the kind of the two sides of the coin and being, I find it now soothing to remind myself of that and to be held by that almost, I don't know if it's a paradox, if that's the right word, but um, it's, I guess it's just a balance. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool to know that some of the stuff I'm saying produced some pleasant emotion <laughs> yeah, over there yeah, on your yeah. end. So that's, that's cool <laughs> to know. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It's nice. Um, it's because to me, it's, it sort of speaks to, you know, the, I think this is more of a Buddhist or kind of that world of philosophy, but is that we are all the answers in some sense are already within us. We just need to be reminded of them. And, and I think whether that's true or not, when I'm reminded of things that I find really helpful and important, it does trigger positive emotion most mm. of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's sort of what I, was really speaking to and it's nice to hear it and it's sort of um Mm -hmm. encouraging yeah i think i mean probably why why we have positive emotions is to guide us towards things that are (laughs) supposed to be beneficial or meaningful or whatever right so that's that's cool yeah okay so then the okay my questions okay i wanted to get your thoughts on the that CBT versus MBCT philosophy, and I'll explain it a little bit. Um, and then maybe how, I guess, so when I, as a, I'm trying to, as a individual, when I am, I, I, I guess I should say, I do and have practiced mindfulness quite a lot over the last almost 10 years. And I, practice pretty consistently it's definitely been harder in the pandemic but which is weird because it's not like i'm going anywhere but (laughs) my mind is definitely not as settled um so when i am able to notice my thoughts and just notice them and acknowledge them and see them observe them they tend to go away uh and then versus so you know uh god I'm a little scattered, but versus say with CBT, if I go through like a thought record Mm -hmm. and I'm putting my thoughts down and I'm evaluating them and then I'm giving evidence for their reality or their, the facts about them versus the counterfactuals, so to speak. um, I can just get in this argument in my head about, well, this proves this and this doesn't prove that. Yeah. It's a lot more analytical kind of process. And yeah. Right. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. And then um, I'm just going to quote, I heard a doctor saying this in a lecture, um, that CBT approach can almost resemble a courtroom where there's two lawyers just arguing back and forth. That's that's one of the analogies when we were teaching it. We're like, put the thought on trial, right? What's the prosecution and defense? Yeah. Right. And so maybe for, I think, you used a great word for the analytical mind or approach that can be perhaps that can be helpful um, versus the mindfulness approach where it's just acknowledging that there's this back and forth dialogue going on and we don't necessarily have to engage in either side we can just observe it and then it tends to dissipate on its own 
And I think yeah. where the gap is, is that once it dissipates in some sense, then you have agency and space to make a decision on what you're going to do rather than yeah. argue the thought. Yeah, no, it's an interesting point. I think, uh, yes, the, the CBT, the cognitive approach is to use the rational mind to make the irrational, unconscious, emotional, whatever, almost be subservient to it. And like, let's get this under control. Let's manage it better. I'm thinking of um, another type of therapy. I don't know if you've heard of uh, internal family systems or IFS, but they view basically all of these thoughts and feelings as coming from different parts of the self or parts of the personality. So say, you know, it's an anxious part of you that worries about everything. Their approach would be, I mean, one is sort of the mindfulness of, oh, there's this thought, there's this feeling, but then to get curious about it and try to relate to it as um, a part of you that needs to be better understood or better, you know, bring some compassion to. And, you know, it's kind of like that, that space you're talking about you can get to through meditation where it's like, okay, now I can kind of approach any one of parts of my experience with equanimity or, you know, curiosity, right? And they, they refer to it in that form of therapy as uh, being in a state of yourself or a self state with a capital S. So they've got their own jargon around it. But I, I think there's a lot of universals in this. And like, what are you, what are we even trying to do by teaching people thought records? Like, do we want people to forever be arguing with themselves? No, I think we want to help people. Like there's the, there's the rationale for what you're doing, which is restructuring your thoughts and thought patterns. But there's also like this trying to build meta awareness of your experience of like right. you know there is there are rational thoughts they are causing reactions um this is what happens when i try to restructure them and change them which for very practical kind of uh daily problems and intense emotional reactions is super helpful to reduce that intensity but then then what right once you got really good at that um that's where the rest of this all the other questions come in right like how do I even relate to this like is the goal that I never have another irrational thought or that I forever argue with myself and have to you know because that they can create that dynamic of you now have you're you're better at winning the battle against your emotional brain or the anxious <laughs> part of you and then like is that where you want to end up because if the goal is symptom reduction then it's great you've reduced symptoms you're no longer depressed you're no longer have an anxiety disorder go on your way and then there's, you know, the, you know, working on core beliefs and stuff like that from a CBT perspective, but it's, they're all different lenses to approach the human condition and what you're is showing up in your experience. And there's pros and cons to all of them, I think. And there's, there's a right time and place for different ones. And some are going to speak to us and resonate a lot more than others, depending on where we're at in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, yeah. Yeah. So I was say, I, I don't think, I don't think one's like right or wrong, like where I work, with the health team, we kind of look at, we're, we're trying to tailor specific therapeutic interventions, mostly from a CBT or mindfulness lens, not, not really bringing in too much else to where someone's at and like how stuck they are and how unwell they are and that kind of thing, which can be quite useful because I don't think there is a one size fits all. And that's part of the problem with something like CBT that's been studied so much. And it's like every you know, every medical doctor is taught it's either medication or CBT for most things as the, as the frontline treatment. And it's like, I think that might do a disservice to people um, to offer them only that at the same time, from like a systems perspective, if you're looking at public mental health funding, especially you need something that's 
got a good evidence base that's readily accessible, that most people can understand the distinction between a thought and a feeling and how do you work with thoughts. So it's very practical and helpful in that way and, and, and uh, you know, short term and bodes well to being mass consumed. But the other thing that they don't look at in a lot of these studies or that doesn't get mentioned is the dropout rates. Um, so effectiveness for a million different things, but 40% of the people don't finish the course of therapy. Why? Maybe it doesn't speak to them. Maybe it doesn't resonate with them and where they're at. So you're kind of hitting someone over the head with a, a, a schema <laughs> and, and it doesn't fit theirs. So that's why when I'm practicing in private practice, I don't like to work from just one modality. I like to try to bring in lots and, and even put modalities inside and just like, let's get to know together as human beings, what the hell is going on here and why you're seeing me. And, and how, how, what direction generally do we want to go before we jump straight to how do I fix it? And I think there is a lot of that fix it, fix it. How do I fix it in our Western way of thinking and our, in our society, which sometimes becomes the problem. Mm -hmm. It can leads mm -hmm. to more reactivity from the mindfulness perspective. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, 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 I'm not, are you familiar with acceptance and commitment therapy? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I've read the happiness trap and uh nice, yeah. i've studied uh, i i haven't studied it extensively but i understand the key components of it and yeah they're they're a lot more of like mindfulness to get separated from whatever it is you're stuck to and then take action in your life consistent with your values it's like the two main ingredients i think and then yeah. there's the other ones like cognitive flexibility and stuff so that, that's an interesting paradigm too to work from you don't always need to go into the problem area and fix it or change it. You just need to get enough distance from it that you're not consumed by it. Like mm -hmm. decentering, which I think is another, I think, universal of what makes therapy helpful. And then go live your life in a, in a way that makes you happier or makes you more fulfilled. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, important things you mentioned there and trying to gather where I guess the, how do we so there's the system perspective on our mental health system is stra I mean, we never actually we don't even have a mental health system first of all i think that's something that people often overlook we have sort of a crisis management system where to get access to care right away basically you need to be suicidal or really sick and then the psychiatrists who are the frontline mental health providers really um, aren't our, our system is not set up for them to provide psychotherapy, which yeah. is so crazy. So like the, yes, in terms of like the first, like the frontline provider, it's actually supposed to be the family doctor. Um, they're supposed to be proficient enough to diagnose most common mental health issues and then uh, offer you, Often medication is the first thing offered, but then to offer referral to psychotherapy if it's available. And as you said, for most part, uh, psychotherapy has been pretty underfunded and the resources haven't been used the greatest. So everywhere it's got anywhere from a six month to two year wait list. Um, where the, the clinic I'm working at, we've, we have a much shorter list, but we're also doing much more limited different kinds of therapy uh, to be more widely accessible, which can still be quite helpful for probably a good chunk of the population, but it's not, it's not, again, it's not a one-stop shop for everything. 
Is your clinic funded by OHIP? Yeah, so it's funded by yeah by the Ministry of Health. So it's um, right on. Yeah. It's like from the family health team structure, which is now becoming Ontario Health Teams. But it's like yeah, specific funding for salaried physicians for psychotherapists, and right. they are putting more money into therapy now. But again, the question then is like, if every therapist you fund just now has a caseload of forty people, and then they're full, and now you have a waitlist again. So that's why we're doing a lot briefer kind of modularized forms of a group therapy, especially because you can deliver a lot more. So it's it's somewhere between the psychoeducation and an actual more conventional therapy group. So we're using more innovative models to see, one, does that still help people actually get better, but can you then actually reduce the wait list, see a lot more people improve population health, all of those questions, right? So from, the, from a systems or publicly funded model, it's a lot more complex than lot more things to consider than when you're just working in private practice which is just like yeah you see people and when you can't see anymore you don't they'll go find someone else but that's for people who can afford it and can pay for it out of pocket which a lot of people can't because it's quite expensive yeah i love the i'll just kind of riff on that the the group therapy stuff i think is so um, powerful and i do think well (laughs) Maybe, okay, this is a good segue here, because one of the other questions I wanted to ask you were, I guess the way I worded it was your thoughts on clinical versus spiritual approaches to addiction recovery. And so we could broaden that uh, question to just be even any really mental health disorder or illness or problem, whatever the word is, um, the balance between the individual one-on-one needs that can't be received in a group and then Mm -hmm. the benefits of the group versus the individual. And I think (sighs) there's such a powerful experience in a group. I I think it does depend on the facilitator a little bit, but so there's that piece. And then I don't know. Yeah, I'll just stop talking because I don't know where my thoughts are going. But it's like that. Yeah. So it was about the spiritual versus clinical uh, approach to addiction recovery, but also more, more formally to any type of like, well being, treatment, service, etc. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, from like the spiritual to it it depends what you mean by spiritual, but Um, yes it does right like do you mean religion and god i mean spirituality versus religion i mean everyone can define let's say yeah let's just draw let's draw the line in the sand for sure not religious we'll say that yeah yeah i think yeah i think like that that that's not gonna the, the spiritual element and anything specifically teaching or referring to that in most of the i guess westernized uh modern psychotherapy approaches isn't isn't yeah. necessarily touched on um it's sort of like that's that's extra therapeutic but um at the same time you are touching on it like when you talk about a group experience one of the most powerful things is is that common factor of universality i'm not alone you know i'm 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 a human being among other human beings who also suffer this way there's i think there's something spiritual about that from in my experience it, it because that isolation and, and sense of I'm I'm permanently screwed up and it's just me is itself. I mean, it's just wrong. 
it's not the truth. And, and anything takes you closer to the truth in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an interconnected sense I th is in line with my views of what my beliefs around spirituality anyway um, is this sense of interconnectedness as an inherent part of that. So I think the group experience can be immensely powerful for that. And the interpersonal learning that can happen. And it's a lot, it's also a lot easier to kind of, if you're not an active member or participant to kind of hide out in the background in a group, um, to not express yourself, to play it safe in a group. Then in individual therapy, the therapist is gonna call you on that a little bit more. Uh, you don't have time to delve into it quite as much. Depends on the kind of group too. So most of like a CBT group, for example, is not, we're not, we're, we're focusing on skills and developing skills and things like that and, and bringing those examples up. We're not confronting individual members on their interpersonal style of relating as you would in like a, um, you know, interpersonal, longer term interpersonal therapy kind of group, um, which can also have a lot of value. So. Yeah, I think, yeah. you know, one of the things that I know was is sort of it's sort of challenged in a direct way in the in the work, again, with the health team I'm doing is the idea that everyone needs individual therapy to get better and to make progress. And it's, it's just the evidence says groups versus individual can be equally effective. And as we were talking about, there are certain things you can only get in a group experience. So the group experience, especially for people with anxiety, socially based anxiety, those kind of things, you're, you're doing exposure therapy by entering the group. That in and of itself can be helpful. And, uh, and for a lot of people, it's enough, but it won't be enough for everybody. Some people are gonna need the individual approach. They're gonna need someone to direct them and help them guide their moment to moment experience in a way that's therapeutic. They may need the one-on-one -on -one relational experience as well. So again, there's, there's so many, there's many paths to healing, to recovery, to growth, and it's never gonna be a one size fits all. And that, that's the problem with um, a lot of the quotes evidence-based therapies is you're assuming it's, you know, this works for this disorder for anyone who has it. But I've met a lot of people who have depression or anxiety disorders or addictions, and they're all, there's similarities and there's a lot of differences in terms of what's causing it, in terms of how they got there. And it doesn't, you know, when you view someone just based on a diagnostic label, you you lose sight of that. You're like, oh, this is, you know, we're treating the depression, but it's like what's causing the depression is never even really questioned. Mm -hmm. And that's because you that that's a much more complicated thing to answer. And for some people, you never need to go there, really, for them to get to get relief. And for others, you do. I think. Yeah, definitely. That that's brings up a, a curiosity of mine is, and I always I'm trying to walk this line with people that I've been seeing or would see. I, I definitely would also identify myself as more of an in, integrated person. Like I don't subscribe to a model. I think I try to do my best to meet the person where they're at and go from there. Um, so how do you, I guess my the my, the thoughts I'm having are definitely not a one size all one size fits approach is going to work for everybody. So I'm just curious how you how you try to walk to or or find what is causing this person suffering. So yes, let's identify why you're here and what 
you perceive as your problem right now. And then that's the doorway in. And then kind of where do we go from there? How do we pivot? How do we yeah. work with that? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, we, we do need models to make sense yeah. of anything, especially yeah. human experience. And so like the common factors literature about what makes psychotherapy effective it says basically no one model is necessarily better than the others, but you need a model. You need an approach that you're using. You need to have certain common factors, including a way of conceptualizing the distress. You need procedures or techniques or strategies for how to address it. Um, it has to occur within context of some kind of relational experience that's going on for it to be psychotherapy. And then I think you need a way to measure progress over time. Um, you need a way to assess, did this actually help me? And that's one of the things CBD is very good at. They really like track your mood, track how you're doing. Did this actually make a difference, right? Pay attention to that stuff. Um, so you need, you need a way to assess, is this going anywhere? And that may be for one person that may be over the course of weeks or months for another, it may, it may be, you know, you're looking at many months at a time to see, wow, over the past nine months, now we're starting to see change, right? So I think you need an approach, you need a model. And my, my approach as an integrative therapist is I'll try one on when I think it fits and we'll try to work with it. And if we're getting some wiggle room, we're gonna keep using it. But then when we're stuck, we might troubleshoot within that model, what's, what's stuck, how do we get around it? But if it's just not fitting, it's not getting it anywhere, then we need to look at why that is. And maybe it's not the right approach for this person. Yeah. So we need, the model itself is not the deciding factor, but you need one. You need you need a framework of some kind that you're using. There's, I think there's way too many therapists who are strictly kind of Rogerian. And it's like, I will listen to you and I will be supportive and I will validate. For most people, especially if they've been suffering for a very long time with complicated issues, especially if there's trauma, that is not gonna be enough. So. Roger said those are the necessary and sufficient conditions for therapy. And I think what I would say, and I think a lot of people who look at that now say is they are necessary, but they're not always sufficient. You need more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I think as the literature suggests, you, you need at least that without that, mm -hmm. there won't be much progress, which right. was probably, which is probably one of the difficulties with slapping, I think, I love the way you put it, like beating someone over the head. Or I can't remember exactly yeah. what you said with a beating model. Beating someone over the head with a model. Yeah. 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 And so make it work. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing that analogy because it's so true. Um, and yeah. So, so without the alliance, the models lose their efficacy. Um, yeah. I'm curious. I, I are you familiar with my fit or feedback informed treatment like ORS, SRS? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So that's that's kind of built into the clinic I work at awesome. uh, is using. We use a couple of measures like the PHQ-9 for depression, G87 for anxiety, a few other ones, and measure over time to see do symptom scores change, basically. And yeah, because the research says when you measure using some standardized tool, on average, uh, treatment is more effective than if you don't. Yeah. So the, that's that's why we're yeah. using it. Right on. I think the, I really like the, so I've been using those basically since I started because I, 
I saw a, a professor, a clinical psychologist present at a mindfulness conference on these, the ORS, which is outcomes rating scale, mm. SRS session rating scale, where yeah. you, yeah, so it's a measurement of client progress and then also a measurement of, it's kind of like asking the client to give you feedback on how you did in the session. Yeah, it's really getting more to the therapeutic relationship and alliance, which you know makes sense because that is has been studied as more important than particular techniques or strategies, right? Yeah, yeah. It's um oh I'm gonna pause for one second. I'm getting the note that my internet's unstable. Sorry, one sec. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah you froze for a few seconds there for me. Okay. But okay. uh I think it's back, back. Are we back? Yeah, I'm. Yeah, okay. Here. I can <laughs> so, see you. Yeah. Okay, thanks. I can hear you. <laughs> um, maybe, and also, I think we, I, I'm just a bit more curious if you could expand on your thoughts about the sort of spiritual nature of well being. And again, spiritual, of course, I like how you said it depends on how you define it. I think I definitely agree with you at, at a fundamental level. It's about a sense of interconnectedness and not being on an island and that type of thing do you do you think well one thing i like about act a lot is because it is based well there's a there's an acknowledgement of values which i think in some sense are a bit more on the spiritual bend also i like cbt too about the core beliefs and sort of how that to me that's a little bit of a spiritual spin as well. Maybe the world's the word spiritual is limiting even. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess maybe in your own life or just how you see people healing, how does that play a part in, I know it's a bit of an abstract question, but how does it play yeah. a part in your own life and how you see it in others? Well, yeah, I mean, when I think of that term, like, different points in my life it's been so many different things and for many years I didn't even think in that term at all so I think probably more recent years it's come back into my mind for me it comes like it's like profound meaningfulness um and I'm I'm it's interesting I'm, I'm very interested in a lot of the research they're doing on on psychedelics now and psychedelic assisted therapy and that's like the mystical experience or that that spiritual experience they're finding is like a, a core thing that happens to people when the parts of the brain that represent our sense of everyday self or ego or default mode network whatever you want to call it is inhibited people spontaneously have this experience a lot of the time of being interconnected of some broader sense of reality connection and i think you know, I think that is a big part of what has been missing in the collective consciousness of human beings. Um, that's causing a lot of problems. So this is, this is, it's almost cliche to say, uh, and they used to say it back in, I guess, more of the hippie days of like, well, if everyone just did LSD, everyone, the world would be a better place. <laughs> and it's like, not necessarily, I think you may get a glimpse of something, but you still have to incorporate that and integrate it into your life after. But I think it is a vital thing then, and I think it does arise in the context of 
whether it's a, a profound one-on-one -on -one relationship with somebody, a group experience. Um, and there are, there are scientific facts pointing to the reality more and more every day. We do not live in isolation from one another. The pandemic, viruses are really good at proving that. <laughs> warming is a huge existential threat to the human species. And it is directly a result of the reality that we are not separate from the earth. We are not separate from each other on very fundamental levels. Now, people, um, people take this to a weird, weird extreme sometimes and think, well, you know, the kind of butterfly effect, everything I do at any given moment will affect everyone else everywhere. And it's like, probably, I don't think so, but we don't know exactly what the effects will be. All of this is to say, err on the side of being more considerate and more compassionate than not, because chances are you are going to affect someone else in your life uh, by what you do or what you don't do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this gets to like the, in my mind, the great existential burden in a sense uh, it's it's and this is why i'm a huge fan of, of victor frankel and his whole thing is about personal responsibility you create your life you create the meaning in your life not not in an absolute sense but there's there's choice there yeah so i think these um there's a there's a risk of again, from the over-medicalized lens of putting everything into the dysfunction of your brain and your thinking and fix that and everything will be fine. It's like you can't separate the individual from their context and their society. And you can't separate, you know, one from a global sense, one nation from another, right? Those are arbitrary lines that someone drew and maybe they're useful for certain things. But when it comes to the, the real big, huge problems facing us as a, as a as a species, they're, they're detrimental. Yeah. And it, it's this proximity and, and effect and tribal kind of thinking of, well, that's over there. It's not over here. It will come over here, right? Refugees are your prime example. They're not here by accident. They're here because everything, the stuff going on here that you're benefiting from, it's probably screwing them over over there in some way. Not not to say we're like I don't want to overstate and oversimplify this. Yeah. Like it's because we're living so well here that they're they're suffering there. That's not the only reason, but that there are connections. And and we don't people don't want to think beyond themselves. I mean, look at the divide of these like the anti-mask movements and you know, people against the pandemic. Give me my freedom. Yes, this is an imposition on freedom, but there's reasons for it. And it's not just about you. It's about the people who, if they get this virus, will probably die or have lifelong condition problems right and yeah. you can disagree with the policies in place and stuff but the fundamental fact that we're choosing to do something to address this so that we prevent unnecessary deaths versus not i think is actually a good sign that at least people are thinking that way now how they go about it and how corrupt it is and how ineffective is a whole other argument yeah so yeah i think i think we need more of that a universal kind of awareness um that's in my mind what spirituality is speaks to for me yeah yeah thank you that was awesome i i'm getting positive sensations in my body i think one of my <laughs> one of my teachers my mindfulness teacher she's uh wonderful she's a medical doctor too and she 
Anyway, she always says, well, that's just a sign of your body releasing endorphins or dopamine. I can't remember whatever it is, but because what you're saying is so important. And, and I also like how you distinguish between, we can kind of disagree on the details and, and how to get places, but mm-hmm. there is this sort of universal, or if we can open to the sense of a universal connection or acknowledging that our actions and decisions have impact on people and places that we're so disconnected from is hugely important. Um, I guess I want to ask you, because this comes up in this context a lot is, so when, when, how to, how to walk the line between uh, our, I would say, personal responsibility to be compassionate and understanding towards other people, and also not to condone behavior that for that we definitely know we disagree with so for example if i see here here's maybe uh, more broad examples when i was in university uh, i was in university during 9 11 and so i always wondered why is it that we never ask what might have motivated these people to fly planes Mm. into buildings on our Mm -hmm, soil? mm -hmm. So, or Western, you know, in America. Um, So yeah, we don't even ask certain questions, but then I think the flip side of that in modern times is when Donald Trump was elected in 2016, nobody said sincerely with compassion and curiosity, I wonder why people voted for Donald Trump. That question just wasn't asked. Or if it was asked, it was like, oh, well, because they're just racist or they're sexist or they're this or they're that. And like, that's so ridiculous. So that might be a kernel of truth to that for some people. But as a whole, there's so many other reasons. And because you said it well, too, we don't want to look beyond ourselves we don't ask these questions. And I know we're both getting into kind of a conversation that's a bit outside our own professional world, but it is connected, I think. And so, yeah, yeah. no, definitely. I think they're, they're important questions because it's so much easier to just demonize the other um, than to look at ourselves. Mm -hmm. And you're right. There are certain things that if I had the opportunity to absolutely stop them from happening by any means necessary, I would. Right. Uh, a rape, a murder, genocide. These are things if, if they were in my power to stop, I don't care, I'd stop them. I don't care why it's happening. I don't care why the person is doing it because I think they're just bad and wrong. That's right. my moral belief. Yeah. So we need, we need, I think we need to take stands against certain things as we take stands for others, like compassion and understanding. Right. Uh-huh. Is it the case that you know sexism and, and racism and stuff probably was a selling point uh, that that Trump used to gain votes? Sure. Um, but why are so many people so desperate in the first place that they think he's a good choice to help them with these problems? Right. I don't think every person who voted for him is like a horrible bigot. A lot of them are probably just you know very 
uneducated in, in, in certain sense. Some of them are probably very well educated, um, but also hold certain worldviews that I find to be quite abhorrent and inconsistent with my own. Now, how do we bridge the divide, right? Like this is this is a real challenge because it feels when you when we come up against people who are so their values seem so uh, opposite to our own. Mm-hmm. The response is defensiveness and disgust and anger. And it's like all of those things, like it feels personal, like a personal attack. Yeah. And it takes a real, uh, almost like a spiritual giant to not give into that. The the most impressive thing I've read in recent times along these lines is some guy, he's he's a, a black man in America who talks to people in the KKK and has so far gotten something like 300 of them to change their beliefs and leave the KKK. Mm-hmm. How do you, as a person of color, who these people are by definition would would you know murder you if they get the chance? How do you put that aside to meet the other person as a human being and get curious about them and let them see I'm I'm more like you than than you think? I don't know how you do that. I could tell you as a Jew, if I was coming up against Nazis, I'd want to kill them. And it would take everything in my power not to not to given to animalistic rage how do you put that aside to talk to that person and whose job is it who should have those conversations that to me is like i don't know but i think we need to talk we need we need to find a way to do that yeah i love the analogy of the spiritual giant because there really is that i think and i'm getting more uh goosebumps but that yeah that i i don't i think i it's easy for me to sit here and say but i do i think i've always been a bit inclined to be willing to be around people who others find not acceptable so to speak i think as a kid (laughs) being a troublemaker ingrained that in me a lot but and it was weird I was a troublemaker and a peacemaker which is very strange I I would try to make peace amongst the troublemakers (laughs) that was my thing but um there is let's see here where I oh that's what I wanted to say is I think one aspect of what is not given value to and I I don't know if I would have crossed this line or not, but I certainly admittedly would have been very close to it is I think many re- people, why they voted for someone like Donald Trump is had really almost nothing to do with him and what he represented. It was more of a fuck you to the other side. And like, I do think there's evidence that a lot of people did do that. And so <laughs> When, when we demonize uh, the other, so to speak, or people that we don't agree with, how the hell do we ever expect them to see what we're trying to say or to listen to us? It just, as you mentioned, put it nicely too, we're animals. And so this instinct instantly, mm-hmm. that defensive fight, flight, freeze thing gets triggered so mm-hmm. quickly. And there is no getting through after that happens. And it's so much easier to. Uh, my psychiatrist used this word one day when I was asking him a lot of these questions called reactance. 
It's an awesome word. And it really means kind of like a, a fuck you to this like constraints of being told what to think and what to do. And mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. I think the con current discourse around a lot of these social problems are just so polluted by that. Uh, and it is hard to, I think the social dilemma, do you know that movie about from, have you seen that, heard of that movie, the social dilemma? Uh, is that one focusing on social media and stuff? Yeah, it was re yeah, came out the recently. Polarization, I think I did. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. I think it does a great job at describing how our social media tools are reinforcing the tribalism yeah. really badly. But anyhow, yeah. yeah so that's, the algorithms. That's my... uh, yeah, they 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 are they target what gets attention, and so yeah, your reaction itself, reactivity, is what they will pour gas on because it's like from the from the machine's perspective it's a dopamine hit i did the right thing let's yeah, do more yeah, of this yeah right yeah. and people get get you know it's a feedback loop right mm -hmm. but uh yeah i think again this comes this comes back to like you you can how do you have compassion for someone who is so different from you that you actually are disgusted by them yes and i think that that othering response and that disgust. And I mean, there's, there's all the evolutionary reasons we have that built in. Yeah. And to, there's, there's this phrase from, from the, I guess it's from Christianity. It found its way into 12 steps, but, but, but for the grace of God, go I like, had you been born, if there's a you that was out there before you were born that got transported into a body, like a soul, I don't know, but had you been born in their shoes, in their back, with their family and their socioeconomic status, might you not be just like them? And why aren't you? Because you, your, your genetic randomness of the universe puts you somewhere else, right? And that to me is, is the one way I, I try to find my way around just hating, <laughs> hating someone that I find hate, you know, distasteful. It's like, <laughs> they're still human. They may be not the best representation of what I think human beings are capable of, but they're still a human being, and there's a reason they're wearing that hat or waving that flag. And it's like, what is the alternative to just say, "Well, you're a racist, and we should kill all the racists," or we should just hope and wait that they all die out? It's like, like these problems aren't going away on their own. They've been there since the dawn of humanity. They will continue to be there, probably as long as there's human beings. But how we deal with them? as a society, we have some say over, right? Mm -hmm. So like othering someone very different than you might actually be not only learned, but partially biologically innate. Totally. Look at what chimpanzees do to chimps outside of their tribe. Yeah. To us, they look the same. They will tear each other apart. Yeah. We're not that different. We're very advanced primates and people want to think that we're like, somehow beyond that we're clearly not yeah, yeah. No, how do you how not. do you reconcile the ugliest parts of human experience i think you have to own that that could be you yes yes you could be the bigot you could be and this is like built into the whole like woke culture to maybe sometimes silly extremes but at the same time the fundamental message of like you need to be checking yourself because you're not immune and even if you're not a racist you might still be very prejudiced against certain people in other ways. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah. You may still be a bigot in other senses, from, but not along racial lines. Maybe it's along sexist lines. Maybe it's uh, you don't, you're intolerant to immigrants. Maybe you're intolerant to people who uh, dress a certain way or to, to people from certain sexual orientations. Like the, 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 and that's the universal or spiritual message of compassion and you know coming from Buddhism. Like we need to start with what we have in common as like the foundation of respecting each other. Yeah. Let's say you and I strive to that and we're like, yes, we're going to do it. And then you come across someone who is so antithetical to even that idea and just calls you all kinds of names and thinks you're an idiot and whatever. And it's like, you need to have like a tiny bit of a partner at the other table who's willing to talk and listen. And not everyone's going to do that. But there's Definitely people who not. will. I think there's people, there, there are always people mm-hmm. in any camp who will. And those are the people that need to be connecting. How do you sift through, you know, if you have 10 people who are just like, screw you, you're the other team, vote, I vote red, you vote blue. Yeah. There's got to be one who's like a little bit willing to talk to you as a human being and like have a coffee. And those connections, I think, can change, can change things if, if, there, if enough of them happen often enough. Yeah. I agreed. And I, I looked up quickly the guy, cause I'm aware that man, the black guy who, who's been working with KKK members, which is yeah, such a crazy thing to think. Yeah. Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis. Wow. Yeah. Um, incredible. So those are the, and I agree, there are people that are willing to do that. I do want to comment on the almost, I, I think it's somewhat, I don't know. Uh, an example of human nature, the the drives of the kind of wokeness of checking yourself is has almost become a parody of itself because the wokeness doesn't check itself, which is so, you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's so that's well that's and then that becomes yeah. the laughing point of the other side, right? They right, look at they right, look at how right. far you've taken it and say, well, that's what all of you guys represent, and it's not. Right. right. The same way not right, everyone right, who right, 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 voted for Trump right. wants to, you know, right. do everything, endorse all that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, the extremes yeah. get amplified and then you think mm-hmm. they're representative of the whole. And that's that classic right. just stereotyping, right? Yes. But it's the same in like spiritual communities, that whole spiritual bypass. I'm above all this. I'm so advanced. <laughs> I'm so woke. It's like if you say that, you're not. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because if, if you're really that, you know, you, you would probably be more humble than anything. Yeah. If you were truly following whatever that path is, right? Mm-hmm, you would, mm-hmm, you would, mm-hmm. you would take that, you know. But for the grace of God, go I with every breath, because, yeah, like, it's it's just so mind-boggling to think. And I, I remember, I because I, I was, I, I was seeing a psychologist briefly, just around. I was dealing with anger and frustration, and he's like, "What if you were born in a hellhole in Bangladesh instead of here? How unfair would that be?" And he's talking to me about the unfairness that we focus on when we're angry. And he's like, imagine we don't take, we take for granted that which is unfair in our favor all the time. But it speaks again to that. Why, why should compassion and empathy be values that we strive for among other ones? Because that's just the reality. You could have been born anywhere at any time in history. And here you are with all your privilege, with all of your advantages. So you could have been born in, 
you know, Appalachian America with yeah. no education and living in poverty. And everyone calls you a racist and hates you. Yeah. Maybe partially because you're a racist, but also because, <laughs> but also, also, that's not your fault to begin right. with. Agreed. You, Agreed. You, yeah. you know, at a, at a certain point, you have to take responsibility for yourself in your life as an adult. And if you were grown up like that and realize it's a problem, it's on you to change it. Yeah. But it's also on society to educate people. It's also on us to, I mean, I mean, society is a large to, I don't know. It, these problems get so big and, and, and complicated that, you know, the erosion of the education system, right? Of the healthcare system, of the fact that people are living paycheck to paycheck. These are all problems that fuel what yes. manifests and bubbles to the surface. Yeah. yeah. And the reasons for that are also complex. Very much so. And the, I, I think that that's the Trojan horse of a Trump or even of a Biden is they're just the illusions on the surface misrepresent the reality underneath. And the reality underneath is that the income inequality in America has gotten so out of whack that we easily call it racist or prejudice or this or that or systemic this or that. But I mean, it's we lose sight of actually addressing the complicated nature of reality with simple slogans. And mm -hmm. it's, it's hard. It is complicated. I do want to mention, I think Sam Harris, I think does a great job of acknowledging that uh, the birth lottery, right? We, because mm -hmm. you spoke to it really nicely there and yeah, I mean, it also helps, I think, big time with ego deflation and just who are we to think that we really had anything to do with where we are and what, you know, we do have agency over our choices, of course, but there's so much randomness in who we are. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose the city mm -hmm. we grew up in. We didn't choose all these things. So I think reminding oneself of that can help to not blame the others we're disgusted by or whatever and then at least that's a good foundation for progress i guess you could say yeah and i also think there's like there are times where like say you're engaged in that you're the, the enemy at the gate so to speak foaming at the mouth <laughs> there may there may be a time we have to fight and that's the thing like actually fight. Um, I hope it's not in violent ways, but you know, to stand up and say, no, this is not okay. We're not going to accept it. We're going to do everything in our power to oppose you. Because if you don't like the one thing, there's this good article or writing or cartoon I saw, but it was, I forget who the author was, but he, he was talking about, you should not be tolerant towards intolerance as a society, because tolerance towards intolerance allows it to fester and allows it to now how you deal with it then as a as a alternative to that is is a difficult question because people have their own rights and freedoms but like it's uh it's not addressing it in a very direct way that lets it fester i mean i'm in canada they they voted to put the proud boys as a terrorist group and i was like good you should put them as a terrorist group you should take away their assets because they are advocating the exact same things that the Nazis did in, in different ways with different language. 
And then there, people would say that's a false equivalency. And I'd say, no, they're wearing different clothes. They look different. They sound different. The message is the same. The message, anything that targets particular groups of people in society in a hateful way for simply being who they are is the message of the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And so I applaud our government for, for doing that. Um, because if you allow them to, to just be there, then they get more emboldened and they think, well, now, now that becomes more normal. Right. So I think there is a time to fight. And I, I think, you know, it's the same thing when I see, you know, the Black Lives Matters protests devolving at times in certain places into rioting. I'm like, yeah, I get it. It's okay that they're rioting. It's, it's not great. I mean, it's not great if someone, certainly I hope no one dies or gets hurt. But if they freaking blow up a Walmart, I don't care at this point. And I don't, I don't think we should care that much because they're talking about, they're talking about human beings being treated like rats in the street, being shot and killed, as if their lives had that much value or that much. And I, I shouldn't even use that term, rats, because that just brings this whole connotation. But the equivalence of like their lives not mattering, like if if that was me and that was happening in my community, I think I could understand you know, torching things in the streets. So like, we can sit here and talk of, of you know, the, our values that we, we hold, but it's like, when it comes down to it, if your life is on the line every single day, because you're, because you're black, it's like, fuck. yeah, I don't know. I, I get it though. Like I get why, you know, but, and then, and then people want to focus on writing as the problem. You're treating, you're addressing, you're, you're looking at a symptom. Come mm-hmm. back to our earlier conversation. Why is that symptom there? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the only thing I would push back on in some sense is I don't actually think the evidence is there to suggest that Black people in America have to walk around fearing for their life. Like, that's ridiculous, in my opinion. And it's also not proven by the numbers in terms of how many police shootings there are and and all that kind of stuff and that the research i'm referencing was done by a black person from harvard in the u.s who was really interested in this stuff and so if we are to solve those problems we have to be able to talk about them somewhat distanced so that we don't get our our biases in the way of it and and we've been talking for a long time which is amazing and, and I, my ability to think clearly slows down a bit, but I, I'm just curious what you think about that. Like, if the real numbers don't bore out what the status quo media messages are, is that a problem? And which, which numbers what, are you yeah. referring to? So, so I think the idea that like police in America are out trying to kill black people is not true. And you mean intentionally or in reality of what's happening in terms of yeah, good question. Disproportionate. I would say both. Dispro- I would say both. So I mean, more you can black look at people. So yeah, let me I just mean, say the number. Yeah, more black people have encounters with the police than whites, but they're not killed or murdered at higher levels than white people are when they have encounters with the police, and so. I think because so then the argument gets racial racialized and then we don't actually solve it when 
The problem is that more poor people have encounters with the police. And because of the historical factors in America, more black people are poor. So if, which leads to more encounters with the police. So why aren't we trying to address that? Like poverty is the real problem in the black community, which you could say is systemic racism. So let's focus on that rather than creating- Make it only about race. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think to say it's only one problem, like racism is an oversimplification and it's just not right. true, as you're saying. Right, right. But it's intertwined with the other problems. Yes. Um, right. And I think to not address it as part of this the systemic issues would be a mistake. Right. Um, right. If it's true, and I, I assume these facts that you're saying are correct, if it's true that the rates are roughly equivalent or maybe more, you know, just I don't know if the rates equal, do more white people proportionally die? I mean that's still a big problem. Like, why are so many people dying at the hands of uh, totally police, right? Yeah, and if yeah, yeah. if a if a you know like a George Floyd video highlights how many are dying of any color, it's a huge problem because yeah. it's completely unnecessary. It's it's unwarranted and it's un. It, it it goes against what the law says the police should be doing. So, for in my mind, if even if it's true that it's it's not the amounts of death are not along racial lines just for racial reasons, the problem remains the same as police brutality and abusing their power. Yes. And targeting people who are poor and incarcerating people who are poor and who ha- also happen to be of a certain color a lot of the time. So I, I think that this is where this is where the talking points of well, it's not really about that. All lives matter. It's like just, just shut up. We're not. That's not even what it's about, really. Uh, for, for, you know, I, I view the Black Lives Matter movement as supporting the rights of every single person in society, even though they're they're making right. it about them because mm-hmm. they are the, the group they're a part of. I understand that. I don't see how you couldn't support it. I don't see how you couldn't be against. Uh, illegal use of police force or police brutality. I don't see how you could be against disproportionately incarcerating people living in poverty. So that's where I my agree. mind goes with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it, then it becomes about a single issue, and the single issue oversimplifies things, and then people argue about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's, you know, from a, not not to go into like conspiracy theory, deep state, whatever, but like. People in power love that shit because they yeah. it brings the focus off of them. Yes. The yes. oligarchs, the oligarchs are sitting in their ivory towers laughing because you're fighting amongst yourselves, you peasants. You're all roughly in the same boat. The difference of someone, you know, in poverty versus middle class is huge, but the difference between the middle class and the people who hold you know real power is astronomical. And that difference is even greater. Totally. And anyway, as I, yeah, yeah, it's, we, no, it's, I love talking about this stuff. Um, it's, I'm actually looking at a, another study. So the study that I was referencing is from Roland Fryer, who's a black academic at Harvard, who's done the most extensive thorough research on it. And, and black people are more likely to experience aggressive behavior from police, mm-hmm. which is, you could say is an expression of prejudice or, or something like that. Um, 
anyhow, I don't, I am not skilled enough to talk about it, but I do think it's super important that we talk about that stuff as clearly as possible. And like, we're not doing that because yeah. like what you said, we just get to the extremes and then the people that are responsible for fixing this just get off scot-free it's like well i think i think what you're pointing to is the important to maintain as much as possible like a scientific evidence base for why for policies and 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 what we focus on yes yes because if you focus too much energy on the wrong things you're not going to have the effects you want to have um and yeah at the same time it makes me think of just like therapeutic skills of like validation. Things need to be valid. Even if someone's factually wrong in their thinking, if you're just like, you're wrong and here's why, again, it's just defensive and argumentation. Um, even if, you know, if there is a perception in a certain community that, you know, all, all police are racist and out to kill me, even if that's not true, we need to validate why they think that. Yes. And there's there's yes. a lot of good reasons to think that based on the history of, of treatment of Black people in the United Agreed. States. Agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah, 100%. But then I also see people who take it to the extreme of just like gaslighting. Um, while you're just, your thinking's wrong because it doesn't match the facts, therefore you can almost have this, um, I don't know, detached, uh, cold scientific view of, well, that's mm-hmm. not what the numbers say, therefore you're wrong. It's like, we we need we need we need to we need people's lived experience to also be part of the evidence base. We do, we do, but and it's, it's not the but, whole picture. Right, right, yeah. Right? It's part of the picture. It is. It is. Yeah. Anyway, we've um, we've gone from uh, yeah, no, but talking it's about good. therapy yeah. and mental health to societal <laughs> problems and racism and. But but they're many. connected in some ways, I think, right? Like. Yeah, none of these things, I mean, the, the common denominator to me, to a lot of this stuff, and this is my own bias, is, is trauma. Right. People become the way they are based on how they grew up, and if how they grew up was traumatic, and it doesn't have to be capital P trauma, that leads to PTSD, it could be being indoctrinated with horrible lessons about yourself. I think that's traumatic yeah. to a human being. It totally. could be, indo- you know, and being being taught to amplify your uh, tendency to hate, I think is traumatic to the development of a child because I don't think it's yeah. it's not it's not necessary and it's not what's best for that person or human being, right? Totally, yeah. Um, I just want to, for my own needs, I'm gonna just read one paragraph from this Atlantic article. Um, is there really a racial bias in police shootings? And then it goes, yes, according to conventional wisdom, but an an Atlantic reader flags surprising new evidence via the New York Times that suggests otherwise. A new study confirms that black men and women are treated differently in the hands of law enforcement. They are more likely to be touched, handcuffed, pushed to the ground or pepper sprayed by a police officer, even after accounting for how, where, and when they encounter the police. So that is the validating the lived experience of black people in America who are treated differently by the police, which is horrible. Like, I don't think anyone would argue that. I hope not at least. And then it says, but when it comes to the most lethal forms of force, police shootings, 
the study finds no racial bias. Then quoted, it is the most surprising result of my career, said Roland G. Fryer Jr., the author of the study and a professor of economics at Harvard. Anyway, I won't, but I, I do think it's important to read things like that because it also helps us realize that sometimes things aren't perhaps as bad as they're being made out to be in certain ways. And I'm not saying that it's not bad what's going on there, but just, I wanted to read that. Was that a, study a, just looking at use of shootings or any lethal force, anything resulting in death? Both, I think. It's really extensive. Like uh, if you just look up Roland Fryer, Harvard study. Um, anyhow, but you know, that yeah. you'll never see that discussed on the news. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one particular fact among many, right? Right, right. Um, right. And I think, I, th I don't think we should deny any facts once they're established as facts. Right. But yeah. I, I think that's the kind of fact that a lot of people would point to and say, see, there's no racist yes. problem. Right, right, right. There's no yes. problem. You guys are all full <laughs> of shit. Uh, right. you're, you're making it up. And it's like, even if that one fact is true, you're, you can't cherry pick that and say, there's a problem. There's no racism. Yes. There's no, I mean, yes. even within yes. that paragraph yes. alone, it highlights that that's clearly not the case. Yes, agreed, agreed. Yeah, I think it's a good example of the more than one thing can be happening and true in some sense. Um, yeah, and the ability yeah. to have nuanced discussions and acknowledge facts that seem maybe inconsistent with your worldview right can right. feel can feel threatening to people and it can you know again you have to feel safe enough to even consider that as a possibility and not personally yeah. attacked or threatened because if you yeah. do then it's the blinders are on and can't can't listen anymore yeah yeah totally oh cool well thank you man this has been yeah. so good i love it love it and uh yeah, thanks for uh, yeah. for inviting me. It's good to see you and, and to talk to you about Likewise. all these sorts yeah. of things. Yeah. It's a lot of a lot of stimulation of <laughs> the brain. Agreed, agreed. Which is why I just love doing it, and I hope we can do it again some point. Yeah. Um, cool. And uh, anything else you feel compelled to say or or mention or uh, maybe let people know where they can find your music and stuff like that. And I'll include it in the show notes, but sure. just, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, music is mcfubb.com, mcfubb.com. And then my website for my therapy is danielfarb.com. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome, Dan. Well, thanks, man. Ah, knock my microphone over. Um, I hope you it is lovely outside of here, I assume, in Brampton. Yeah. And yeah, where you are too. But going to be heading out after this. So cool. good to see you and uh, hope you have a good yeah. rest of your day. And let's uh, keep in touch. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Take it easy. Okay. Bye. Peace. <laughs>